everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. On this episode, I have Kathleen Sullivan. Kathleen is a evaluator. She's also an attorney. I probably should have led with she's an attorney and also an evaluator. She's going to educate us today on advocacy and policy, what we as individuals can do in terms of promoting the things that we really care about and what organizations can do in terms of advocacy and policy change. So let's dive right in. Hi, Kathleen Sullivan. Welcome to Community Possibilities. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I am so excited. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but uh, when I did my career testing in college, when I was trying to decide what I wanted my um, my graduate degree, it actually said lawyer. <laughs> and I said, no, thank you. So Kathleen, um, uh, listeners, is an attorney who also works in the evaluation space. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but Kathleen, we met in 2018, I know that because I had to look it up, at the AEA conference, and the theme was Speaking Truth to Power, and I was on a panel, I uh, chaired a panel on um, our experiences, my colleagues, uh, Susan Wolf and Martha Brown and myself, and we each talked about an incident where we had to stand up to power, and I think you were one of like six people in the room. And I came in late and I think I had been in the gym and my hair was still wet. I'm embarrassed to say, but um, I did get there. I got there. That I don't remember, but I do uh, remember that you came uh, up afterwards and were very complimentary. And we, uh, we kind of uh, bonded over uh, my talk. Let's just, let's, let's just leave it there. Um, So, and, and every year since, well, at least when we can see each other in person, we always manage to find each other at AEA. And I've enjoyed um, getting to know you. And I'm really excited to talk to you. But before I like just go on and on and on, why don't you introduce yourself to uh, the listeners and let them know who you are? Great. Um, so uh, I am talking to you from outside of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I, I grew up in New England, spent a bunch of time uh, bouncing around the country um, and uh, then found my way back to um, suburban Boston about 20 years ago now. And um, it is kind of a long, strange journey from um, lawyer to evaluator. I only know maybe two or three other folks um, who have uh, who have done this. But for me, it really I think it kind of made sense. I. I knew that I was going to be interested in human rights. I did uh, some human rights advocacy in college. And when I graduated from law school, it was a time when there were lots of refugees from uh, the civil wars in Central America. Scary time. And I represented asylum seekers who'd fled really um, horrible violence. But uh, very few people could win asylum in the U.S. because U.S. law was just very narrow um, and restrictive. It was then and it still is now. So having uh, represented asylum seekers and others for a couple of years, I decided pretty early on that what I really liked to do and what I was pretty good at was identifying problems in the law and communicating ways that laws could be improved. So I turned to that instead of representing individual people. 
Uh, I did law reform work for a bunch of years, both uh, as an advocate, and then I worked briefly as a staffer uh, for the U.S. Senate Immigration Subcommittee. And over that period of time, I learned a fair amount about the various activities that go into making effective advocacy. So um, at, at a point in my life in which I needed a new set of experiences, um, I turned to helping ad activists and funders determine where they're making progress in their advocacy work and where the gaps are and uh, where they should consider adjusting their tactics to be more effective. So that's generally what I do. I also continue to write about policy campaigns and what makes them effective on various public policy blogs as well. Well, great, thank you. So I know one of the things that you and I um, definitely bond over is this idea of community change and systems level change. I work with nonprofits, foundations, community coalitions. I know you definitely work with foundations and, and coalitions as well. But, you know, community change is hard. And so many of the folks that I work with tend to think like program level change. And I there's so many areas we could go here. I, I They feel like either advocacy is just too hard or they're not allowed to do it. And so I wonder if you can kind of speak to advocacy as a strategy for community change and, and maybe how groups who want to do that kind of work uh, should go about it. Sure. Um, it's something that, that I'm just really passionate about because I've um, I've been a service provider and supported um, legal service providers. I did that um, for years. And I think really for any um, social change organization, including service providers, advocacy is a really important tool to have in the in the toolbox. So just to sort of get um, just to sort of, you know, get some definitions. Advocacy itself is just very simply a set of activities for achieving a goal or a set of goals. And um, those of us in the human race know that um, that humans are pretty natural advocates. So if you've ever um, had a, a teenager who was uh, looking to borrow your car and she works on you for half an hour to do that, that is that's a, obviously a form of advocacy. Um, the type of advocacy we're talking about today um, involves a group of people who are experiencing a problem that needs fixing, who come together to decide on common goals and a common way of, um, of approaching it. Service providers are a really, really important part of, um, of that dynamic. And here's a really concrete reason why. Um, both as an advocate myself and as a, um, as a congressional staffer, I learned that People who um, elected officials and their staff really depend on service providers and other community um, people working in the community to be their eyes and ears on how things are going within the community. So if you are working with people experiencing homelessness or if you are um, doing an after school tutoring program, uh, you are really you and the affected people, the people who are experiencing um, uh, these issues are really best placed to tell your elected officials what it is that needs to uh, to be changed. So um, even if uh, the 
what you can do within advocacy and everybody's uh, hours are limited in a day is um, the occasional uh, conversation with a member of your um, of your board of selectmen or your city council, um, or maybe you go to a roundtable with your member of of Congress, you know, once or twice a year. That is really uh, an important contribution and something that those that those folks really value. Well, can I can I ask you then? How come so many? Um, let's just take nonprofits for example. How many, there seems to be so many rather who, who feel like they are not allowed to do that. They are not allowed to advocate. Yeah, and I think that that's really a, I think that that's a common um, misperception and certainly over the last um, decade, maybe 15 years, um, advocacy has become so politicized that people tend to, um, to be overly cautious if you are a 501c3 nonprofit, and here I am speaking with my advocate hat and not my lawyer hat, this is not my area of legal expertise, um, you are able under um, federal law to engage in a certain amount of advocacy. And um, so that's really sort of the baseline message is that there is no thoroughgoing ban on advocacy um, by 501c3 nonprofits. For groups that are new to this um, and um, want help figuring out how to get in, into advocacy and how much advocacy they can do, the best resource that I know about is the Alliance for Justice's Boulder Advocacy Project. Uh, it's boulderadvocacy.org. Um, they've been around for um, quite a while. Uh, in the last couple of years, they've worked with thousands of nonprofits, and most of them are service providers and community organizations. They do great workshops. They provide technical assistance. They can help you become knowledgeable and confident about your advocacy, how much you're doing, and really sort of understand the practical guardrails. I, I have um, seen uh, a terrific training that they did a, a number of um, of years ago with board members from community-based uh, nonprofits. It just happened to be in Texas, which was extremely practical. So, I, you know, I would um, recommend that your uh, listeners um, check check them out and see what they can offer. Great, awesome. Well, thank you for um, explaining what advocacy is and and a little bit more about what uh, folks can do. But one um, other term I think we need to dig into a little bit about, uh, a little bit is policy and how advocacy and policy are related. Because again, getting back to when I work a lot of times in communities, uh, sometimes we kind of go for the low hanging fruit where um, it seems to me if we get at some of the policy things that really uh, impact so much of our daily lives, we might have a shot of doing this thing we call systems change. Maybe, maybe that, maybe I'm naive. That's the hope. But talk to us about policy then, and then maybe how advocacy and policy are related. Yeah. So um, policy is just sort of systematizing advocacy, making it broader. So just to kind of give you a, a, a fast and easy example. Let's just say that you have a group of neighbors that lobbies the city council to install a crosswalk near uh, the local school. That 
I would consider to be an advocacy activity. But um, what then if people across the city got together to demand that crosswalks be installed wherever and whenever a new school is built? That's a, that is a policy change. Um, so policy, policy is, um, is, built, is built on advocacy in that way. I think one of the few bright linings of the, of the pandemic period of the last uh, couple of years, and there aren't very many, but one of them is that I think that a lot of us who got very used to a scarcity mentality of the last 30 years um, saw really in, um, in very um, graphic terms how much governments can do for uh, for people who are um, who are experiencing health issues, who are experiencing homelessness, um, who have real serious economic challenges, the capacity of government to be able to address those issues completely dwarfs all of the Bill Gateses um, mm. of of the world, and. Um, and I think we have just recently seen that if, in fact, our elected officials have the political will to take those kinds of steps, that, um, that many things are possible. I, I, I think we have certainly since, um, certainly since the 1990s and, the, um, and welfare reform legislation of the 1990s, we have settled for and understanding that that uh, government can only do so much. Well, there's a lot more that government can do, um, but we've all got to be out there demanding it. Yeah, so we have to be advocating for what we want too, as citizens. Absolutely, yeah. all of us do. Absolutely. Right. So yep. um, let's talk about then what good advocacy looks like. And I don't know if you want to, we, we talked about personal advocacy there for just a second, but what does good advocacy look like uh, at maybe at that level, but maybe at the organizational or community level? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, um, that's a big question and there's a lot of definitions of it. I come from a human rights um, training background and from a human rights perspective, good advocacy begins with members of the directly affected community, coming together to decide what their principal challenges are and learn what their rights are and identify the types of change that they are going to, um, to demand. Often ally organizations will help directly impacted people to develop the skills and expertise that they need to do that kind of advocacy and you know, help folks to establish a coalition to get meetings with elected representatives, to go to court to overturn bad laws or to um, defend good ones. And also uh, allies are really helpful at getting, um, helping directly impacted people to make their cases um, to, the, to the media. Um, I, I believe that the best and most effective advocacy is, is centered in that way on directly impacted communities. It's, it's long, it can, be, um, it can be difficult, but that's the way that the, that the, best, um, that the best advocacy happens. I, I, do really, I do really think 
and coming back to something that we talked about before, that if if you are working with a population that is directly impacted by some social problem, that a certain amount of that kind of of work is um, is really what we all should be doing. Mm-hmm. Right, and yeah. So service providers and organizations uh, can and should do advocacy. Can I can I ask can I ask you something something that we hadn't talked about? We were talking sure. we we talked uh, talked a little bit about uh, personal advocacy, and you you mentioned as a staffer that that is how uh, our uh, the the congressman staff and congressperson staff uh, really understands what's going on in the community by hearing from those organizations and I would assume individuals but as someone who has been that person who picks up the phone or sends that email sometimes I feel I get a canned response back that they did not even hear what I said because the response obviously they didn't read it because they're telling me they're supporting something I did not support. If that makes, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had that experience. I had that experience recently, not with, um, uh, not with a federal elected official, but with my, uh, local state representative, I, um, I wrote a kind of indignant message and got back a lovely, well-crafted letter from the office, essentially, um, you know, saying thank you for um, supporting, um, you know, my elected um, representative's position, and which was, of course, completely diametrically opposed to what I said. Um, I think there's there's a handful of things that we need to understand about this. The first one is that um, is that numbers count. Numbers always count. Um, people who do a lot of work um, on advocacy in Washington say that it is important to make those phone calls to your elected officials' Washington office. Why is that? Well, for uh, a number of your listeners will have traveled those marble halls of the congressional office buildings in D.C., and you will know a couple things about them. First of all, the hallways are very big and they're marble. Second of all, the offices themselves are not very big. They're relatively small. And people tend to keep their office or people people do on occasion keep their office doors open. And when when phones are ringing off the hook, when the, uh, when, um, the voters are angry or enthusiastic about something, the halls reverberate. It's a very physical oh my sound. Gosh. Yeah, it's great. It's terrific. And so you want to be part of that. You want to, um, you want to show. You want to make a. Um, you want to make a righteous noise uh, when it comes. Uh, certainly, when it comes to your member of Congress. Um, different state legislatures have different, uh, you know, have different ways of operating. And of course, the COVID period is is very different with uh, with people, um, people at the uh, the Massachusetts State House, for example, um, visitors are still not um, are still not able to visit. But um, but making that making that physical noise by calling is um, is really uh, is really important. Also, I think just really um, 
there are going to be elected officials who are just never going to agree with us on particular topics, but that doesn't mean that you that you should not um, respectfully and repeatedly say that you disagree with their with their stance on something. Mm-hmm. Weird stuff happens. Conditions change. Um, alliances change. Uh, people, people who are looking to do the right thing are going to be looking for the voters to express support for it so that if they need the political cover to do what they think is right already, um, they've got that. So, yeah, it's those are some I mean. You do have to be you do have to be patient, though, sometimes with, you know, people like my state representative. No, that that was really helpful. Just that image of phones ringing in the hall will um, will resonate because, you know, I don't know, maybe people can relate to this. It's so much easier to send off an email than to talk to some stranger on the phone. And it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, if you're going to do one or the other, pick up the phone and call. I would say so. The other thing that you can do, and I know that this is um, that this is easier in, you know, I'm 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 in a tiny state um, and the distances are are very um, are very short. So when our member, our uh, member of the House of Representatives, Catherine Clark, holds uh, an, an open house somewhere, um, a school auditorium or something, it is pretty easy to get there to talk with her. Uh, that that I think is something else that that um, that people need to keep in mind, and this is actually a really good strategy for elected officials at at any level. As a service provider and as a constituent, the local level um, staff of your member of Congress or your county supervisor, or what you know, whatever your government um, uh, formation is, the staff. It, it is it is the role of the staff to be um, cultivating and paying attention to what people like you think and want, whether or not um, it is actually com- completely comports with what your elected official thinks and wants. It is up to those staffers to be keeping track of that and to be making a good making a good report. So if you're um, if you feel that you are getting you know nonsensical responses from your member of Congress when you call her office in Washington, I would say, um, cultivate the staff members from the office that is going to be in the district or office or offices that are that are in the district find that district office director make an appointment half an hour appointment um, go with some colleagues and have a conversation with that person about your issue and and um, and why it's important those relationships can be made and they are extremely extremely important Great. So that kind of leads us into um, thinking about how do we know when our advocacy is successful? I think you're basically saying, well, you know, you may be giving them political cover that they didn't have. You're giving them information that they um, didn't have. It doesn't always mean we win them over to our side, but, and this is a really long slog sometimes. So how do we, how do we stay encouraged? How do we know we're being successful at all? And that's, that, that really is, um, 
that's really important. It's a, it is both, you know, somewhat of a science and, and a little bit of an art form. And, you know, as you identified, sometimes advocacy success is really rapid and visible. Um, and uh, let's, so, you know, maybe a good example of that would be if there's a group of students advocating for an office to help immigrant students on a particular campus and that office is opened and funded, um, that's an indication of success, right? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty clear um, win. But for policy changes, it almost always takes a group of actors working together and over a period of years. There are ways to develop yardsticks to identify what constitutes advocacy progress, what constitutes progress in terms of um, building the political will of um, your member of Congress, what constitutes progress in terms of um, getting your local media to portray your issue in the way that you think that it should uh, be portrayed. Uh, a place to start is a list of advocacy outcomes that you can get on the resources um, page of my, of my website, but it is possible for organizations to um, organizations, coalitions to develop relatively straightforward tools that you can use um, over a period of months to keep track of what it is that you are doing on, in the advocacy space and whether uh, progress in building that political will or building the understanding of the media or building the understanding of the general public is actually happening. So it sounds like what you're saying is that um, it's going to take a while and we need to be mindful of that and then identify the map. And if I'm thinking about, you know, I like to hike. So if I'm thinking about the markings that mark the trail, that that my group is kind of laying out, here's the path, here's, here's you know, we know where we want to get to and here are the markers kind of along the way. That's the, That's kind of the metaphor that came to my mind. Golly gee, I think can't we just get to the end of the hike without having to go through all this? I mean, sometimes don't you ever feel like right is just right? Yes, I mean, I think so. There's two. Uh, I agree with you, and there's sort of two steps to that. The first one is that you that you and whoever you are doing your advocacy with have to determine what what is what would success be. And how do you? How are you going to recognize it when you um, when you have it? So let's just say you are um, uh, you are advocating for uh, an issue that I that I know something about. You are advocating um, for driver's licenses for a group of immigrant students that who do not have them. Um, you're likely to be going through a process where, first of all, you educate your elected official about the fact that the problem even exists because she might not even know that it exists. Then um, you are going to probably be bringing her stories about what the real world impact of that is. Then maybe next legislative session, you get her to um, sign on to someone else's legislation that would, uh, that would permit driver's licenses. Then maybe later in the legislative session or the next legislative session, you get her to actually introduce legislation this way. It's a stepwise, mm -hmm. um, it's a, generally a stepwise progression. 
Um, so the first thing that you would do as a, as a coalition or a group that's interested in doing this work is to determine what those steps are. And then the second thing that you do is that you regularly review your progress in a very straightforward way. It does not have to be fancy dashboards. I mean, you can make a fancy dashboard, but it, but what most, uh, what many, many um, advocacy organizations find effective is merely an after action meeting in which, you know, if you have taken, um, half a dozen immigrant students to meet your elected representative, when you come back to the office, you all debrief and, um, and you, you know, write that down in a page or two. And then, um, and then the next time you do an action, same thing, debrief, you know, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Doing that does two things. The first thing that it does is it in, that is it um, convinces everybody, including yourself, that progress is possible. Mm -hmm. um, and it also instills an interest in measuring stuff that's hard to measure, right? Um, I mean, students, students love this sort of stuff. So, uh, so if in fact you happen to be in a, an arena where that where students either can be or are involved, I would say definitely um, involve them in doing that. But a simple set of signposts, as you suggested, and then look for it at regular intervals, mm -hmm. and that's really what it that's really what right. it requires. Yeah, sounds like a like a do well, do better process, which I I love. Yes. Right. As a as an after action kind of experience for folks. So is this the kind of work that you help organizations do or do you other what kind of tell us a little bit about the work you do with organizations? Yes, I do. Um, so there's a couple of things that I do. One of the things that I do and actually the thing that I enjoy doing the most is what we were just talking about, which is um, in it's sort of in the business, it's it's the measurement and learning part of the business. So I will um, help a, um, I'll help a nonprofit organization, a nonprofit advocacy organization or coalition, first of all, determine what those signposts are, <clears throat> what kind of progress they expect and what they are likely to see if progress is happening and then um, a couple of really um, sort of easy, straightforward tools to measure their um, to measure those pro the progress towards those signposts. And um, so, just to give you an example of that, <coughs> excuse me. One of my measurement and learning clients uh, provides really concrete advice and support for local communities that are facing threats from white supremacist actors and groups. And they provide trainings and materials for community members and, and recommendations for elected officials and, and schools and other institutions in the community. And they do a couple of things really regularly. They survey people who use their training materials. And so then they are able to adjust them to make them more practical and helpful. And they do regular after action meetings when they mobilize people, <clears throat> when they do community more mobilizations so they can figure out how to make the mobilizations more successful over time. Love doing that work. 
I do. Um, I do a fair amount of it. Would love to do more. I also do external evaluations, and what that um, what that work entails. This, the front end of it is very similar. Work with the organization, the advocacy organization, to um, articulate the type of change that they believe that they are making, and then I go out and I gather data myself through interviews, focus groups, um, review uh, people's grant proposals and grant reports, and um, make findings and, um, and recommendations to them about how, uh, how that work is going and how it might be <clears throat> improved. And then one related thing that I uh, do is that I, um, I also write uh, concept papers for groups that are seeking support for a, a new um, program or campaign. And that's, uh, that is um, measurement related because mm -hmm. it also involves articulating a, a strategy very clearly and how you're going to um, keep track of it over time. So does, does that involve then mm -hmm. uh, like doing research to see what's been done in the past, what's been effective, what the needs are? Yes, all of, of those. Yeah, I think that really all of that, all of that work does um, benefit from having a baseline understanding of what has been done in the past, who else is um, who else is working on the issue, and what the organization's sort of unique value or unique uh, niche within that advocacy work is. And when people think about unique niche, I mean, I have had, you know, I've had folks say to me, well, you know, we do work that's similar to work that's being done in Worcester, work that's being done in Portsmouth, et cetera. But you're doing it with a particular population, a particular geographic population with particular with particular needs. So there is you have a niche. It's um, it's a process of uh, of doing some back and forth to figure out what that is. Mm -hmm. Right. So it seems like you really love policy. Mm -hmm. I remember um, when a uh, certain woman ran for president of the United States that people always referred to Hillary as a policy wonk. Like people who love policy get a bad, bad name, right? Um, and I don't know if you've read uh, Daniel Dawes' Political Determinants of Health, but it's all about... Um, not just social determinants of health, but the huh. policy that affects why there are health disparities. So Kathleen, why do you love policy so much? Isn't it just like dry and boring? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't think I, so. I'm just, I love, I mean, I love policy. Well, I mean, I have to, I have to um, confess that I was a, that I'm a history nerd from way back. So really, I think my, my, deepest, my, my deepest intellectual passion is understanding strategy, um, why people think that a particular set of activities is going to do something, and how they put together a plan to get from point A to, to point B. Um, I mean, I, I really like that in sort of all arenas, arts, hockey. <laughs> um, it's a, uh, it's just, it's, it's a particular intellectual interest of mine. Mm -hmm. I think in the U S policy gets a bad name because we tend to think of public policy as programs and laws that 
affect us that are made like really far away and that most of the time we can't impact them. But I have I've been really lucky to have seen it from several sides. And I have seen situations in which a relatively small group of activated and motivated people can make a very big difference. Um, and I think that that's really energizing. I, you know, I think that for a lot of us, we have a personal mission to try to leave the planet in a slightly better place than we found it. And, um, and policy and working on policy is, a, um, is definitely a, a way to uh, make that contribution. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but as I look at the next uh, few years and, and what we've been going through and, and how much more time maybe I have left uh, in my career, I don't have time for things that don't work. Right. I, I, I want to work with folks who are really trying to make a difference in their communities. And I know you feel the same way, too. But I got to ask you, you're the only evaluator I know that's also an attorney. Um, what the heck? <laughs> it's actually a relatively it's actually a relatively similar set of skills. Um, you know, if you're a lawyer, you're you're trained to work with a client to identify her objectives and then gather and analyze data to make the best plan to achieve them. Um, it just requires being able to grasp that clients operations really quickly and research and present options in a way that's really usable um, to that person or that organization. And that really does describe what a good advocacy evaluator does just with a sort of a different set of tools and with a group as opposed to an individual um, or um, company. I'm actually sort of surprised that there aren't more lawyers who are um, who are interested in in doing this but um, lawyers tend to be kind of one-on-one -on -one, um, sorts of uh, sorts of folks in the mm. main at least insofar as it's seen but yeah translatable set of skills so if any of um, of your listeners out there are uh, are lawyers who want a different challenge, I would say you know, jump into the pool. Go for it, absolutely. Yep. There's definitely more more room at the systems uh, change table for sure. Well, um, I I think if I told Dan that I was going to law school, he'd probably leave me. So I think I will. <laughs> I think I will leave that up to you. But uh, as we draw this to a close. Um, when you look to the future, Kathleen, what community possibilities do you see? I would say that we are in kind of a goal, another golden age of community organizing, right? Um, where I am sitting is about 20-ish miles from Lawrence, Massachusetts, where the Bread and Roses um, strike in the early 1900s was violently put down by, uh, by government. But over time, immigrant and women workers who had been working in horrific uh, conditions in Lowell and Lawrence and New Bedford and throughout the Northeast came together and demanded rights and built a union movement and made change for generations. Um, that's 
that's incredibly inspiring. I think that there were political and economic and social forces, uh, certainly beginning in the late 70s through the 80s and 90s that sought to erode that. But um, the advent of a new generation, social media, uh, of just much more connectivity has, um, has changed that somewhat. And I also think that people who are interested in social change have taken a look at gridlock in Washington, gridlock in Boston, gridlock in a lot of our um, in a lot of our state houses and have decided that if anything is going to change, then directly impacted communities are going to need to be at the forefront of it. So I actually have quite a lot of optimism that um, that things uh, can change. And I think I am just really, you know, for the rest of my days going to be an evangelist for if you have if you are passionate about a problem, if you are working on it, if you are impacted by it, um, that you should go and tell your elected officials what you think and what you know and mm -hmm. be their expert on that issue. Oh, I love that. Be that expert on their issue. I love that. All right. All right, everybody, we have our walking orders. We have our, we know what we're supposed to do. So pick up your phone and, and do what you know you need to do. So Kathleen, if people want to work with you or learn more about you, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, the best way is to go through my, um, through my website, which is finegagestrategy.com. Um, love to talk with people about, about their issues and, uh, one thing that I always tell people is that I have a particular um, arena of expertise that might not be exactly what you need, but I'm always happy to talk with you because I know a lot of people who are out there. I know the, um, some of the brilliant Ann Prices of the world and uh, folks within other folks within the evaluation and strategy and planning communities. And if it doesn't sound to me like what um, you're looking for is something uh, that I um, am expert in. I am very glad to introduce you to people who are. So uh, don't be shy. Get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. I enjoyed it, Anne. All righty. Have a good day. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. I hope you were inspired by what you heard. I have a big announcement for you. I have a new free mini course that is available that I have designed for community coalition and nonprofit leaders. I've found that something that gets community leaders over their fear of evaluation or maybe it helps them make it more of a priority anyway, is to think about how they can use their data to reach their audience. So in this free mini course, I talk about infographics and success stories, and uh, even throw in an activity that you can do with your community group. So uh, check it out. I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can go on over and grab that mini course. And before I let you go, just want to remind you that it's so helpful if you would like and share and maybe even take that extra second to write a review about the podcast. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.